Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely nervous. <laughs> but uh, good morning, church. Uh, it's a great joy to be with you this morning on Palm Sunday. Um, you know, as Matt was naming off all these names, uh, it, it, you know, I, I wanted to also give thanks to, you know, to you guys. Those names that Matt listed off and the many more uh, are more than just simple names. So I know myself, my family, we're just, we're grateful for you guys. We love you guys, and you know, I just wanted to publicly take the opportunity to, to tell you guys thank you so much for being there for us and uh, pointing us to Jesus and, and getting us to a point where we can uh, get into the Word of God and uh, study it. So before I dive into this sermon, let's just uh, go before the Lord and, and pray and ask Him to bless our time and, and study. So bow your hearts with me. Lord, just thank you for today. Thank you, God, that on the Lord's Day, each Sunday, God, you call your church to proclaim your word. So we ask, God, that you give us uh, eyes, hearts, and ears, Lord, to see wondrous things, to see the gospel, to see Christ, and that ultimately, God, it would encourage us, Lord, to, to faithfulness, uh, to being on mission for your glory. So we praise you, God, for Palm Sunday. We praise you that uh, you inspired texts, you inspired the word of God uh, that bears witness to Palm Sunday, Lord. So um, just bless us, I pray. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. I've titled my sermon today, De Visita and Destruction. De Visita. I remember my mom waking me up Saturday mornings and telling me, Hey, Marcelo, levantate. Vamos a visitar tu abuelita, tu tío. De Visita. We're going to go on a visit. And this term pretty much took on memories for me of my childhood of family gatherings, parties, and celebrations. And actually, De Visita, this familial celebratory time is, is quite similar to what we'll see on Palm Sunday, except the visit that should have been a party, a celebration, the visita in Jerusalem would turn out for destruction. So on this Sunday, April 2nd, the church observes and recognizes and celebrates Jesus for his life and sinatoning work during the final week, Holy Week, and we commemorate, right, with these palms, the triumphal entry of our Lord Jesus Christ to his city, Jerusalem, where we understand and we look at and remember the cosmic significance of what went down leading up to his suffering, crucifixion, glorious resurrection in the person of the historical Jesus of Nazareth. But, but listen, this is more than just mere ritual. It's, it's more than just observance. There are many key figures in history that we admire and study. In fact, in February during the, our DRC book club, we, we read this book, Why We Can't Wait, by Dr. Martin Luther King. And, and it's a commendable read. It's a fascinating read, uh, looking at the summer of 1963 and the civil rights movement. A lot to commend, a lot to observe, a lot to think about. But there is only one human being, and more than just a human, one figure that is worthy of our worship, and that is Messiah Jesus, who over 2,000 years ago, on this first day of Holy Passion Week, made his way to the city of Jerusalem to present himself as the promised and true King of Israel, who entered into the world he created and came to his own people to seek and save that which was lost. So I don't want to waste any more time. You don't need those, you know, fresh word Fridays. You don't need a, you know, a Monday motivation talk. What we need on this Lord's Day is to hear from God himself. So, so grab your Bibles, grab your Bibles, open them up to the first chapter of Luke. Let, let's look at God's word and let, let's begin this study on Palm Sunday. We're going to look at Dr. Luke, this physician, this scholar of sorts who endeavored to compile an account of the historical Jesus from eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Look, I, I'm not making this up. You can look for yourselves. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. It says, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Dr. Luke, he did his research. He worked. He spoke to witnesses who were there. And, and he wrote through the superintendents of the Holy Spirit this gospel that we have before you. 
so that a noble name named Theophilus and that we today may know the exact truth about the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Amen? This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't mythology. This isn't some co-opted, pillaged you know, ideas from some other ancient Near Eastern religion. No, this is revelation from the one true living God concerning the promised salvation foreshadowed in the Hebrew Bible and fulfilled in the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Messiah Jesus. So with this in mind, let's, let's make our way to chapter 19 of Luke. And we're going to study Palm Sunday beginning in verse 28. Verse 28, draw your eyes at verse 28 as I read. After he said these things, going up to Jerusalem. See, Jesus is on a journey here. Palm, Palm Sunday is not happening in a vacuum. It's not an isolated incident. Jesus is not heading to Jerusalem aimlessly. In fact, Christ preparing himself to go up to Jerusalem is in line with the Davidic promises of a king, and it's connected to a fulfillment of a grand biblical story of the sovereign plan of salvation and redemption from the penalty, presence, and power of sin. So let, let's understand this salvation history by looking at Luke and his geography. Geography matters to Luke. People, places, it means something. So point one on your outline, let's go to Garden to Galilee and towards Jerusalem. Point one. According to our historian, Jesus is carrying out the greatest of mission impossibles. And, and this mission goes all the way back to the garden. It goes to Eden. It begins with the, the author, the creator of life, with God himself, who is the uncaused causer. He's the one, right? He's the one that beat the drum for the Big Bang. He's, he is the self-existent one, the I am who I am. This is the God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. Not just any old God, not a God that we imagine, the one true living God. And he is the creator of all things, including the crown jewel of his creation, human beings who were made to reflect his glory and represent him in a regal and royal fashion. Pastor Matt tends to liken this story to one of unrequited love. Right, God who is love and is life, he made humanity to delight and treasure him, to find our ultimate satisfaction in, in loving him and serving him and obeying him. It wasn't that you know, God created humanity so, so he would be a cosmic killjoy, right? He's just like needy and anxious and scared. And so, oh, I just, I just need some friends to like me. No, 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 brothers and sisters. He is the one in whom our embodied souls were made for. But rather than heeding the call to represent him, to reflect his glory all over the earth, we chose to reject him. We chose independence. We said, no, Lord, we don't want your sovereign kingship. And this is what theologians call the fall. And for a simple folk like myself, this is what we call just everyday life when you wake up. Right? Everyday life when you wake up. God, who is the sole possessor of life, in holy judgment, he takes back what is rightfully his. Death and disruption is now what we see. It's what we feel. It's what we know. So the creation groans, right? Natural disasters. Our communities are ravaged by this, right? Recent news of the Nashville shooting. There's all kinds of relational strife, disunity, oppression, injustice. And even our own bodies feel this, right? We feel the crushing weight of sin. Sickness, disease, anxiety, guilt, vices of all kind, internal strife. And at the root of all this experience, at the root of it all, it's the fact that we're separated from our Creator, the one in whom our souls are meant to delight in. But here's the good news. This is a God who is not caught off guard by our rebellion, by our rejection. Though Adam and Eve sought to hide from him in the garden, the all-knowing, all-seeing, and ever-present God was there in their time of need, and ours as well. He's a God of abounding love. He's a God overflowing with mercy and grace. And he's a God of promises, promises that go far beyond, and they're not even close to the worldly promises that these buster-pimp preachers try to peddle 
out there with the health and wealth and prosperity gospel, which is not a gospel at all. His promise deals, it goes right to the great disruptor of life, which is sin. And it's the promise of the Messiah. It's the promise of the Messiah. On the day that Adam and Eve were deceived, right, by the serpent and rebelled, seeking to usurp God's authority, the Lord Yahweh was there and intervened and gave his first hint of good news. This is what we call the proto-euangelion, and it's found in Genesis 3.15. And this is what the Lord said to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you and your seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here we see that first promise of a seed from Eve who would come to crush the head of the serpent and make things the way they were supposed to be. He would bring peace. He would bring shalom. Now, the rest of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible pretty much fills in, okay? It fills in the colors or, or it fills in the contours of the identity of this promised seed. So I, I put up some verses for you. Uh, we read in the public uh, reading of Scripture, Isaiah 11, but simply put, you're, you're seeing this development of who this promised seed is. In Genesis chapter 12, we learn that he, he's coming from this family, this particular people, the descendants of Abraham, Israel, the Jews, and, and he's going to be in a particular land, the land of Israel. Deuteronomy 18.18 18 says that he's going to be a great prop, prophet like Moses, a great deliverer. Psalm 110 and Zechariah 6 speak of this, this king, this, this priest who is the one man, right? The mediator between God and humanity. 2 Samuel chapter 7 speaks of this seed coming from the household of David who is going to establish an everlasting kingdom and bring about peace and judge the wicked. Isaiah 11, as we talked about, it's, it's the branch of David anointed by the Spirit, the Messiah, who would destroy evil and bring peace to the world. And that same as Isaiah says also in chapter 52 and 53 that he would be the seed, the promised suffering servant who would be rejected, suffer, and die for the atonement and forgiveness of sins. So, so look, we, we looked at this euangelion in the garden, right? We're, we're tracing the promises throughout the Hebrew Bible. Now let's travel to Galilee, okay? Let, let's observe the, the glorious plerotensotai of Messiah in the Gospel of Luke. I try to keep the alliteration going for Pastor Matt, okay? All right? Point B, plerotensotai. It's taken from verse 20 of chapter 1 of Luke. This is when the angel Gabriel, he announced the, the birth of John the Baptist to his daddy, and he told his daddy because he doubted and didn't believe, look, you're, your mouth is going to stay shut, you're not going to be able to talk until, until what? Things would be fulfilled in his proper time. The fulfillment here in view is talking about little baby John the Baptist growing up to ultimately serve as the hype man, right, of Jesus Christ. He's, he's the forerunner. He's the one coming before to make way, to prepare the coming of the Messiah. So what is Luke ultimately telling us with this plerotensotai fulfillment language? Well, remember the promised seed? Remember the serpent crusher? Remember these passages we just looked at? <laughs> that prophet, that priest, that king? Well, man, thank God for the New Testament. Thank God for the Lord working his plan. Because when we hop into the New Testament, what we find is that that promised seed is here. The Messiah is here. And Jesus, like he's that dude. What good news is there for us, right? There in the barrios of Galilee, the hood of Nazareth, the announcement of the coming promised seed was declared. The eternal Son of God, who is one with the Father, took on flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit and came to fulfill God's promise and plan of salvation. And this is why, when you, when you jump to chapter 3 of Luke, this is why the genealogy is there. He's identifying all these sons, right? You see all those sons in, your in the Bible? Or, or better yet, all, like whose seed is, he, is, is this one from? Right? Look at verse 31. He's the son of David. Well, that, that indicates he's the rightful heir of the kingdom. Verse 34, he's the son of Abraham. That means he's connected to this blessing of Israel and the land for the joy of the nations. 
Verse 38, he says, he's the son of Adam. So, so he's partly, he's connected to that first evangelion and, and the promise of that serpent crusher. This is that guy. Jesus is that dude. God in the flesh, fulfilling promises. So, we surveyed the promise in the garden. We talked about Pleratetsotai in the galley. Now let's, let's briefly touch on Jesus' procession to Jerusalem. Luke 9, 51, I put it up there for you. It says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He had been ministering in Galilee, revealing his unique identity, showing himself to be the divine messianic king, but now he was determined to go to Jerusalem. The hour was set. Jesus was coming to pay a visit to his people. And as we move along this journey and we get to chapter 19, Jesus is that much closer to Jerusalem. Right? We, re we read morning, morning scripture, right? The scripture read, Jesus went to Jericho and, and he punked the darkness in that town. He saved little Gimpio, corrupt Zacchaeus, right? For he had come to seek and save the lost. And by the time we're in chapter 19, there's just a ton of hype around Jesus. The disciples have been rolling with them, mobbing with them for years, seeing his powerful teaching, his miraculous work, his sovereign grace, right? And, and then we also see some haters. So, so recall our morning scripture read, right? Verse 11, where it talks about the, the people saw what he was doing, they heard what he was doing in terms of saving Zacchaeus, and they immediately thought the kingdom's coming. So we have this, this weird parable in verses 11 to 27 where there's kingdom expectations, there's, there's a coming king, and there's servants, and, and there's haters, and, and rejection, and judgment. And all these themes are prevalent in our passage today, which then leads us to ask the question of whether Israel is actually prepared to meet their king. How are they going to receive Christ? What are they going to make of his kingship? How, how are they going to understand his mission and his plan? Well, we know on this side of the cross, brothers and sisters, that Jesus, he wasn't coronated with the regalia, with great scepter and the precious ornaments of this world, but he was crowned with thorns and suffering. We know that he wasn't welcomed as a king, but was exchanged and treated as a criminal. We know that his kingly glory was not ultimately praised, but he was despised and rejected as one who had no beauty, no majesty that would attract us to him, or nothing in his appearance, nothing that we would desire. We know that he didn't take his seat on that throne, his throne, but was hung and spiked on a cross. So then Palm Sunday helps us understand why all of this went down. The triumphal entrance of King Jesus shows us that amid all this confusion, expectations, right, longings for this Messiah and his identity, Jesus was always in control. He's the divine scriptwriter. He's the main actor determined to go to Jerusalem. It's his story. He's the promised seed. He's the king of Israel who's come to give his life as a ransom for many. He's come to save that which was lost. Amen? So let's continue. Let's continue our worship of Jesus by seeing how this unfolds. Let's get to Palm Sunday. Let's go to Point two on your outline, getting to Bethphage and, and Bethany. Verse 29, let, let, I'm going to read it. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, right? Okay, so you, ha you have Jerusalem over here, and then east of it, you have these little towns, right? Bethphage and, and, and Bethany, okay? And, and in between, you have the Kindron Valley, and then you have the, the Mount of Olives, which is about 2,600 feet above sea level, right? So pretty much as Jesus is, is going... To the top of the Mount of Olives and is going to overlook Jerusalem and then ultimately enter it, he stops at these, these little towns. And it's there, okay, it's there that the Prince of Peace commences his arrangements. Point A on your outline. That's just the image for you guys to see. Just Bethphage, Bethany, and then you can see it as it's, it's, it's going towards the Mount of Olives to overlook Jerusalem. Point A on your outline. The Prince of Peace commences his arrangements. We're going to observe here the sovereign king at work in total control preparing for his arrival. Let's start in verse 29. He sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you 
There, as you enter, you will find a coat tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So our first observation in terms of Jesus' control is that he, he directed his disciples. They say the devil's in the details, right? Well, actually, it, it's, it's the divine. We're going to see that. Now, you got haters, right, that will contend that Jesus is doing nothing special. He's doing nothing unique here. He's pretty much just like a wedding coordinator, a wedding planner, right? He got his cell phone, is sending out his text messages behind the scene to get things going. You know, he hits up Kevin Rathburn and is like, all right, Kevin Rathburn, I need the, 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 the popcorn. I need the candy, you know, candy cotton, whatever. I need the jumpers. Bring it on Sunday. It's about to go down. We're about to throw down a fat old party. That's it. He's just a wedding planner. But look, Jesus is exhibiting total knowledge here. Look at, the, look at those verses again. He, he knows the location of where the donkey is at. He knows it's tied up state. He knows even its condition that it's never been ridden. And he knows exactly how he's going to get it. And, and this is not the only you know, incident in terms of the Lord exhibiting total knowledge. We see here in, in Luke chapter 2, when, when, when he sent Peter and John to the upper room to prepare the Passover meal, and they left and found everything just as he had told them. Right? He would demonstrate total knowledge once more when during that same Passover meal, he would tell of Judas betraying him. And not only that, he would even talk to Peter and let him know that, hey, the rooster's going to crow, not, and you're going to deny me, not, not, not one time, not two times, but three times, and then you're going to deny me. And then lastly, at that same Passover meal, he talks about his suffering, his death, his dying. So look, we're seeing here divinity, the deity of Christ is sprinkled all over his preparations. It's not just some here, mere wedding planner. So as we jump back into the text, as we get to verse 32 once more, we're going to see Jesus' control is confirmed. His sovereignty is confirmed. Look at, look at the text with me again. It says, the two disciples were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to him, why are you untying the colt? Verse 34, they said, the Lord has need of it. It went exactly as God had ordained. Again, haters are going to hate. You know, they're going to come up with all kinds of ideas to just, you know, make this go away. So they'll say that Jesus was, was only able to procure the donkey because he's kind of a celebrity. He's like really popular, okay? I mean, in fact, you know, he knows Lazarus, Mary and Martha, and Bethany, right, just a, chapters before he actually did one of the greatest signs attesting to his Davidic identity by raising Lazarus from the dead, which, you know, that points to his deity, right? But haters are going to say, he's just popular because he knows them already. He did some crazy stuff over there. So it makes total sense that, you know, if he just asks, they're going to be like, yeah, yeah, you know, give it to him. Celebrities get free stuff all the time, right? He's just popular. But look, for the skeptics, might I say that Luke is suggesting something more than just human planning and popularity. Beyond just mere control of these, you know, events, what we see in this passage is that Christ shows control over all of history. He's in control over the history of redemption. So let's look at point B, the prophecy accomplished. Look at verse 35 with me. They brought it, referring to the donkey, to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. The descriptions here seem quite mundane, right? The selection of the type of animal and the manner in which Jesus rides that donkey, like, it just it seems quite mundane, but look, this, this fits a particular occasion. So I, I think about, about it like prom, you know? You don't get all dressed up to, you know, roll up in this beat-up, chimichurri green, 1985 Toyota truck. No, 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 no. Back then in the prom, like, you know, we had those stretch Hummer Libos. Like, you would go, roll up to fit the occasion of prom. And so similar here, Jesus is pulling up in a whip. And that whip is communicating a particular instance, a particular occasion. So notice the type of animal. It's a donkey. Big whoop, right? 
It's a donkey, big whoop, womp, womp. Like he's not sitting on one of those, you know, Super Bowl, Budweiser, Clydesdale horses. Like, you know, that mane is like just as good as those L'Oreal commercials, right? It's just a donkey. But it's such good news, brothers and sisters, that he rode in the donkey for the disciples. And it's such great news for us today that Jesus came riding on a donkey. Our passage this morning doesn't explicitly connect Jesus' presentation as king with Zechariah 9.9, but the apostle Paul, John, excuse me, on the other hand does. Chapter 12 of his gospel, verses 14 to 15, it highlights that this donkey, this, this him riding it, is in connection to fulfillment from what was prophesied by Zechariah a long time ago regarding a Jewish messianic king entering the city to make peace and rule the earth. So this is what our text shows, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As a church, we've been studying this passage, right? We've been studying these post-exilic texts of Scripture. Pastor Matt has been taking us through these historical and prophetic books concerning the return of Israel to the promised land. Recall, Israel was kicked out of the land for breaking covenant. They didn't follow Torah. They, they sought after idols. They whored themselves. They committed spiritual adultery. So then Zechariah comes on the scene around 520 B.C. They're, they're returning back to the land. And it's a, it's a bleak time. It's a scary time. It's a time of fearfulness. Right? The temple's destroyed, it's toppled, and the glory of God is nowhere to be found. But this is where God raises up Zechariah, this prophet, to speak into the darkness and to call them back to work. So in chapter 8, right, he, he's talking about the Lord of hosts is actually going to come to Jerusalem and he's going to establish peace. And in chapter 9, like Pastor Matt talked about, he's like a battle rapper and he's throwing shade on these nations and pretty much saying that judgment's coming straight for their teeth right? And that ultimately the Lord, the Messiah, is going to come to restore, to bring about peace, to exact judgment. So then Israel was, was not to fear, but rejoice, right? Restoration and peace is coming. Why? Because the king was coming, just, endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Now we fast forward 500 years and Right? And boom, who do we got? We have Jesus, perfectly just, knew no sin, righteous in every way, obedient under the law. Not one person could ever convict him of wrongdoing. We see Jesus as the Son of Man, who is the only one with the authority to forgive sins, for he's one with the Father, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, endowed with salvation for all those who repent and believe. Behold, we see the servant of the Lord who comes not in the powers of empire to bring peace by sheer force, but he arrives in a donkey, humble, lowly. This is the king who, when tried by Pontius Pilate, days later said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. At any moment, Jesus could have called down the armies from heaven, his servants, to literally fight so that he would not be delivered over to the Jews and to Rome to die. And yet, as Messiah went on to tell Pontius Pilate, it was for this purpose he was born, and for this purpose he came to the world. The Davidic king would come to make war, yes, to conquer, yes, but it would be against sin and death through the shedding of his own blood and thereby bringing peace to the nations. Now, brothers and sisters, it serves us well to pause real quick and just to ask ourselves the question, what king have you come to believe in, to trust and to serve? Is he patterned after the wisdom of the world and looks more like those divisive political powers? Right? Is he patterned after your imagination? Or is it the Christ revealed to us by Luke's pen who fulfills the prophecy of restoration and peace? What king have you come to believe in? 
the king of glory, the king of peace? My friends, look, all of us long for peace. We desire for things to be the way they are, right? We want harmony. If that was not the case, then whenever you have drama, you know, with your spouse or with your friend or relatives, like, you know, you wouldn't be anxious and frustrated. You wouldn't feel that tension. We were made for peace. And so what we do to help achieve that, to compensate for that, is we will establish kings over our lives. Right? We're not in a country where we have monarchs, but in a sense, we have kings who literally direct, protect, give security, and make sense of our reality. We could do that externally by looking to powers or even eternally with, with our own idols. But those things, if you're honest, if we just take the time to not to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, have never been able to establish everlasting peace. Never. And so I would, I would fail you today. I would fail you today if I didn't lift up the true king who has come. If I didn't ask you, literally call you to trust and treasure him as the one who brings about peace. Because this Christ, this king, doesn't come like the kings of this earth. He, he doesn't come to just, you know, use force to suppress, like, you know, our, you know, our unrighteousness and just keep us in order. But inside we're just raging. No, he comes and actually deals with the problem of sin. He's going to restore the cosmos by making a new creation. He's going to bring harmony to all the social woes. He's going to quiet the anxiety of our hearts that are literally ridden by guilt and shame. And above all else, he's that one mediator between God and man who brings us back into fellowship with the Father. Right? He turns sinners in the hand of a holy and just God and he brings them by grace into the arms of a loving father. So, the king comes, mounted on a donkey. The prophecy is accomplished. And as a result, Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion, ought to have known the time of restoration has come. Again, I want to remind you, this is not mere coincidence. Okay? So let's continue to observe, let's continue to watch Jesus' control over his entrance. We saw how he directed disciples in fulfilling prophecy now we're going to see the way in which he rides the donkey confirms his anointing at king. Point C, the prince's anointing. Middle of verse 35. They threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. Verse 36, he was going, and as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. Now Luke is the only one of the gospel writers that focuses attention on the disciples mounting Jesus on the donkey. We've got to go quickly here for the sake of time, but... A scholar notes that this is pretty much an act of honor. They're paying homage to him as the king. Okay, So here's some verses for you just to look at that in the history of Israel, this event happened in the past, and it speaks to anointing. It speaks to coronating a king. So 1 Kings 1.13 talks about David when he tells his servants to have Solomon ride on the mule right? so he could go get anointed as king. And then we have... 2 Kings 9.13, right, where, 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 where Ahab in these terrible times of Jezebel and him, Jehu is ultimately anointed as king. They're putting coats for him to walk on. So, so all this just is simply just to say, Jesus is in control. He's allowing this to happen, and, and he's getting his flowers. He's getting his flowers. Now, now, this is important to know because he's not pushing it off. Jesus has done that before. You look at Luke chapter 5, you even look at John chapter 6, where they literally in John chapter 6 wanted to force Jesus to become king. And he says, he's like, nah, he gave him the Heisman and just dipped out to the mountain by himself. Right? He's like, my hour had not yet come. But here we see Jesus allowing for the coronation to take place. Here we see him getting the flowers he deserves. He's conducting this. He's doing this. He's fulfilling this. Okay, so we've We've seen thus far the Prince of Peace making arrangements to fulfill prophecy. We looked at the disciples anointing Jesus as the Davidic king and how he's in control of it all. Now, now we're going to move on to Jesus going down the Mount of Olives. And we're going to see the Lord accept worship and praise from his disciples. Luke has used this idea of drawing closer to Jerusalem all throughout his gospel, especially in this chapter, verse 28, 29, 36, 
and now 37, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives. So it's like, it's like the scene is being slowed down from, for us, right? The suspense is building, and so with each step that that donkey takes, that anticipation is building up more and more and more. And so here we have Jesus descending from the Mount of Olives, which is, this is literally pregnant with eschatological hope and longing. Zechariah 14, I'm not going to look at it, but simply put, it says that the Messiah would come on this mountain to, to visit Jerusalem and vanquish the enemies of God. So you have here fulfillment, allusions to fulfillment. He's on the mountain, he's on the mountaintop, and he's coming now. He's coming now. Imagery of judgment and restoration. He's descending. Let's look at the text, verse 37. What happens? The whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Did you notice that? Jesus is accepting worship from his disciples. He's, he's taking on the pilgrim's adoration. Right? Prior, he was keeping a low profile. But this time, he's taking it full on. And notice that the praise, what? It, it's Christ-centered. It's all about him. It, it's effectual. It's, it's not void of emotion. But you see here, it's full of joy. It, it's demonstrative. It comes with a loud voice. And it's scriptural. It flows from Psalm 118, verse 26. Now, much can be said about what constitutes proper worship, but let's just focus on just the scriptural element of Psalm 118. Just for the sake of context, real quick, pretty much this psalm was a, 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 a psalm of a pilgrimage, of ascent. So when the people would go during the three major festivals to go and worship the Lord at the temple, they would sing this psalm. And this psalm pretty much envisioned this Davidic figure who would be delivered by the right hand of God and that he would lead a, a triumphant procession of the righteous going through the gates of Jerusalem and to the temple to offer praise and thanksgiving to God as a representative of his people. So again, pregnant with messianic fulfillment here. And Jesus is enacting this. He's enacting this. What's interesting is that many kings and false messiahs have led processions into Jerusalem in the past. And it's quite possible that those figures, they heard the cries from the people, right? That hope, Psalm 118. They heard it coming from the mouth of the crowd. But for the first time in history, those praises and cries of Psalm 118 coming from the very lips of his disciples was received by one who is able, willing, and faithful to fulfill. There is none like Jesus. There is no salvation, right? Salvation is in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And I'm, I'm, I'm praying, literally, as, as we're taking steps with Jesus towards Jerusalem, that eyes are being opened up to see him as he is. So if you have not trusted Jesus as your king, as the promised one, I would call upon you now to trust in him. Turn from sin. Turn and run to Christ. So brothers and sisters, we see here that Jesus' control even extends to him accepting praise. His control, though, is also revealed in who are the ones that are praising him. Catch the role reversal here. Praise is wrought by the power of God and comes not by man's own wisdom and abilities, but it comes from the least of these given eyes to see the glory of Jesus. We're going to go pe pretty quick here, but previously in Luke 13, verse 34 to 35, you have Jesus uh, essentially pronouncing judgment on Israel for their failure to not receive him as the Messiah and even pronounces judgment on them for this. Right, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that city that kills prophets. It says that he tried to gather him like a hen. And then in verse 35, Behold, the house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Psalm 118, Blessed he is, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So praise during Jesus' first coming never came from the city of Jerusalem. 
It would only come, as Jesus says, after judgment and at the second coming of Christ. So then where did it come from? Where did the praise come from? Well, it was the disciples from the outskirts of Galilee of the Gentiles, the, the borderlands, the margins, the hood that worshipped Christ. It didn't come from the great cities of wisdom like, like Athens or the inhabitants of the city of God. It was the unschooled disciples who recognized by grace their Messiah and praised him. It wasn't the religious elite. It was these ragtag nobodies, least, least of these, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, who were called by the Lord Jesus Christ and who cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's those unclean garbage truck shepherds, those stargazing hippie wise men from the outskirts of nowhere that call out, praise be to Christ for his peace and for his glory. So what does this teach us, brothers and sisters? What does this role reversal teach us here? Well, I believe the Apostle Paul answers this when he wrote to his church family in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, it says, Brothers, consider the time of your calling. Not many of you were wise, not many of you were powerful, not many of you were of a noble birth. He's kind of throwing shade, right? But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly and despised things of the world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast in his presence. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast only in the Lord. Boasting in Christ leaves no room for pride. It doesn't leave room for status, for favoritism, or ego in God's family. Right? We brought nothing to the table of God's salvation. We're all equally humbled and guilty before a holy God. And so Christ is all in all. And this is what we do on Sundays. We gather to boast in Jesus. And we invite all to partake in boasting in Jesus as well. This is what we're doing right now. And speaking of boasting in the power of God, we, we see that Luke also reveals the basis and the reason for the disciples' praise in verse 37. Why did they praise him? One translation says that they praised Jesus for all the mighty works that they had seen God do. Now, the Gospels clearly pronounce judgment on people that are just seeking miracles and signs. You can look at Matthew 12, 39 when you got the chance. I think what Luke is doing here in, in this narrative is he's driving a wedge from those that are praising him, the disciples, and those that are rejecting him, which we'll see is the Pharisees. And, and the reason I, I believe that's the case is, have you, have you guys noticed it's Palm Sunday, right? Have we made any mention of palms? Have we seen anything in the text that talks about palms? No, right? Luke does that on purpose. And the reason that's the case is because palms were literally like throwing up the gang sign back then, okay? Like, this was like a nationalistic, like, call, like, we're about to throw down on the enemies of God. It's quite nationalistic and ethnocentric. And so he's not trying to emphasize what's going on in terms of that dynamic. We can look at the other Gospels for that. What he's trying to emphasize is the praise that is coming from these disciples, these nobodies, and contrast that from those who claim to see but are ultimately blind. That's what he's doing. He's separating the seers from the blind. The disciples, the crowds, the Pharisees, they all had eyes to see. They witnessed the ministry of Jesus Christ. Let's just say it's not their first dance and rodeo with Jesus, okay? So the key distinction here that we're seeing is, is the gift of sight. All had eyes, but not all could see. And the truth is that it, that it takes sheer grace and a supernatural work from God, the Spirit, for one to be able to see Jesus for who he is. Which then brings us to the Pharisees' agitation. Point C on your outline. Pharisees' agitation. Jesus referred to the Pharisees and scribes as blind leading the blind. Right? They honored God with their lips externally, but in their hearts they were far away from him. And we too, because we're blind as well in our sin, are separated from, from God, and, and we don't see Jesus as he really is. 
2 Corinthians 2, or 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, it kind of describes it as this veil over our hearts. And unless that, that veil is like removed, then we'll, we'll never be able to behold and see the glory of Jesus. And this is why skeptics literally can, can, can engage in all these apologetical debates. And you can get them to, to acknowledge the existence of God. You can get them to acknowledge the, the, like the actual historical legitimacy of the resurrection of Jesus. Like you can get them to understand and like agree with, like, man, Christian worldview and ethics, like that makes total sense. And yet they won't bow the knee to Jesus. Why? Because as the saying goes, brothers, what's the problem? The heart is the problem, right? Jesus says that we must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. So family, friends, praise comes from those whose eyes have been opened to see the mighty works of Christ and from those who have tasted the goodness and mercy of God in Jesus. So take time as you're listening to this text being exposited, take time, ask yourself the question, is the cross of Christ and his resurrection foolishness to you? Or is it a wonderful and mighty work of God done by God alone to save you from your sin? Is his grace like a bitter dream, like incapable and unnecessary for your salvation? Like you're in that fleeting bitter dream and you, just, you can't attain it? You know, you feel separated from God, like he can't save me. Or is it as sweet as a fresh mango plucked from the motherland, the Garden of Eden itself? For the blind, like the Pharisees in this case, it's foolish and bitter. And I pray by the grace of God that would not be the case for us today. But let's see what comes out of the mouths of these blind people, okay? Verse 39. The verse says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, from our vantage point, you know, this literally looks like how on earth can the Pharisees miss this? They're, they're, they're just idiots. Like, Jesus, God in the flesh, has done these miracles which verify his identity. He's proclaiming fulfillment of prophecy. He's literally enacting prophecy before them. It's right before their very eyes, and they just don't see it. Man, these Pharisees are just so dumb. Like, I get it. I'm reading this. I totally get it. But, brothers and sisters, I don't want us to stand over the Pharisees saying like they're foolish, they are dumb, but we're good. Because the fact of the matter is we're all blind. The fact of the matter is we're all fallen. And so if we were put in the same conditions as the Pharisees, we would have the same response as them. And so I just, I just want to bring this slide before you and just, and just simply point out there's a ton of action and movement going on in the first century world. There's a, there's a bunch of diverse religious political groups like you see the Herodians they're kind of like the guys that are like man we're all Rome as long as they're doing good then we're benefiting it don't matter what anybody else does you got Sadducees who are like your modern liberals progressives they're like in cahoots with Rome they're like the political figures you know you got Essenes where like they're separated uber conservatives and then you got you know the zealots who like if you ever played Assassin's Creed right you know they're, they're all done up they're literally heading up and just the city of Jerusalem and just straight shanking fools and then just dipping out, trying to overthrow and like targeting, you know, the Roman Empire. And then in between, sandwiched in between, right, the haters of Rome and those that love Rome are these conservative, Bible-believing, like middle class, like just, we just want to love God type folk. They were literally kicked out of, 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 of the land of Israel, exiled, and they're like, dude, I never want that happen. I don't, I don't ever want that to happen to me again. I just don't want that to happen to me again. So what we're going to do is our forefathers rejected Torah. We're going we're gonna to double down and we're going to interpret this baby the right way. We're going to have the right interpretive hermeneutic to draw out from the meaning from the text and we're going to apply it to our lives. And we're going to live this and we're going to do it right. And like Rome, like, dude, we hate them. Oh my gosh, they're so annoying. Like, Literally, they can wipe us out and they can just destroy the temple anytime they want. But guess what? Like, we have promises of a God that's coming. And so we're, we're going to trust the Lord. And, and one day, man, he's going to come and he's just going to just wipe out these fools. That, that, that divine warrior king is coming and he's going to wipe them out. But, but what's interesting here? 
A lot of similarities, right, to our contemporary modern evangelical context. A lot of diversity, a lot of views, right? A lot of those things. But the fact of the matter is, like, you just have a mixed bag. The Pharisees are literally just like us. They have zeal for the Lord, but they're also prideful. You know, they hate their foreman rulers, and so they, they're nationalistic and ethnocentric, which is not good. So Jesus comes on the scene, and he's talking about salvation of Gentiles, like he's extending grace to Samaritans, and like that's just literally giving them an existential crisis. They don't know how to make sense of it all. And they realize that if Jesus coming in, and he's laying like, like this statement of like, I'm king, it's an assault, not just against them, like he's literally making a statement and saying, I'm the universal king, Pilate ain't it, Herod ain't it, Caesar's not it, I am Christ Jesus. And so they're worried, like, nah, dude, nope, you are not going to ruin, you know, our situation here, you're not going to get us kicked out of this land, Jesus, you need to shut your mouth. No, nah, that's a wrap, dude, stop. It makes all the sense for them to tell Jesus to be quiet. If Jesus was literally just a normal man, if Jesus was just a liar, if he was a lunatic, if he was a made-up legend, yeah, shut your mouth, Jesus, stop. But he's not that. And his response to the Pharisees literally confirms that. Verse 40, what does he say? The pillar's affirmation. I tell you, if these become silent, if the disciples do not praise me, then the stones will cry out. Now, it's quite possible that this is an allusion to Habakkuk 2.11, right, where it talks about these pillars, stones, and that's in reference to them crying out in judgment of Babylon. So here, too, Jesus may be saying, look, just like the stones cried out for Babylon in judgment, well, the temple that's going to be destroyed, which you'll see later on in verses 41 to 44, those stones are going to cry out if you tell them to stop praising me in judgment. That, that may be the case. But what's for certain, though, is there's a great irony here between God's creatures and his creation. What the religious leaders made, right, religious leaders who were made in the image of God can't see the creation sees. So Psalm 811, right? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. What the teachers of the law failed to pass along, the created order in Psalm 119 verse 2 literally does, right? The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of their hands. Right? What those who were made to worship do not recognize, the universe makes extremely evident. Romans 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made so that they are without excuse. Palm Sunday is kind of a Debbie Downer, right? <laughs> Like, man, I came to church to hear, you know, this is amazing, yes, encourage me. And it's like, wait a minute, like, you got this divine orchestra that is all set up to, like, sing praises to God, and then, you know, he's coming to his city, and they're supposed to, like, line up with, like, the universe and sing him praises as well, but they literally just put their instruments down and, like, walk off the stage. And the praises stop. Like, this is a, a, an interesting way in which our narrative is going. Right? But, as we've studied this week and, and, or today, Jesus is in control of it all. And so we know that the journey doesn't end here in Jerusalem. We know that Good Friday will come. And we know that Easter, Resurrection Sunday, will come as well. And we also know in Luke that the narrative continues. In fact, it moves over to the road to Emmaus. And this is where we're going to land the plane, okay? This is where we're going to finish it off. We have the resurrected good shepherd who encounters these two disciples on the road to Emmaus to encourage them. In the midst of their confusion, he comes and commissions them, right? Luke, Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, again, Jesus had died. He risen from the dead. They're walking to Emmaus all down and defeated because they thought the hope of Israel to restore the kingdom was coming because he died. It's over. It's a wrap. And so the, the Lord, the resurrected king, literally shows up and he starts walking with them. Like how beautiful that picture is, right? In the midst of their downcast souls and, and confusion, he walks with them. And it says that he literally begins to teach them concerning his sufferings, right? From, from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament. 
And it says as well that as he communed with them, as he stayed with them and broke bread with them, that ultimately their eyes were open and they recognized Jesus for who he is. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And this is what we find at the close of our sermon, that our resurrected king comes in the midst of our confusion right, over his kingdom and his kingship. Just like they were confused and had all kinds of expectations, we do as well, right? We have these over-realized notions of the kingdom, just like the disciples, right? Even, in fact, after Jesus rose from the dead and acted like, all right, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And the Lord said, no, 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 that's not for you to worry about. Your, your job is to go and make disciples. So we, too, are just as confused in, in certain ways over this conquering king getting slaughtered and, and sending us on mission where we, we suffer and, and we're in hard places. And yet, in the midst of our confusion, he comes. Right? This is why Palm Sunday gives us hope. The king comes, humble, riding on a donkey. At his first coming, Jesus not only confronts our confusion, but he made a way for peace. And he does so by taking on the judgment of God that was headed straight for our chest. All of us stand at odds with our true king. We're all part of that rebel army who don't want him to rule, right? Like that prophecy or that parable. Yet God demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners, enemies. The Father sent the eternal Son of God to die for us, Jesus Christ. The king who is enthroned by the praises of the angels and the universe, he humbled himself stepped into this broken world and took on the form of a slave so that he would be mocked, ridiculed, and put to death so that by his wounds we would be taken from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. What good news is that, right? He makes us into servants of the Most High God. So I call on you this morning. Trust in him. If, 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 if you're one of those skeptics, if you're one of those that are on the fence like, who is this Jesus? I don't really know about him. Like, what did he come to do? I think it's been clearly made before you that the God, has, that God in the flesh has come to save us from our sins, to deal with the problem of our sin, to satisfy the wrath of God that was marked for you in order that you would be reconciled to the Father, that that confusion that you have over his kingdom and his kingship would be clarified and that ultimately you would be sent and commissioned as a servant of the Most High King. Brothers and sisters, would you consider that? Consider the crowds. Where do you place yourself in the story of Palm Sunday? Do you place yourself as a pilgrim by the grace of God whose eyes are open to praise him? Or are you blind as a Pharisee and want nothing more than for Jesus to shut his mouth and for the praises of those around him to be quiet? Look, the fact of the matter is, none of us on our own would be pilgrims seeking after God. So beyond looking at those characters, let's actually consider the Christ who is above all. And let's consider the table before us, right? This Lord days that we're going we're gonna to partake in. Let's consider that, the bread and the juice, which picture the gospel that I proclaim before you today. Would, would his body, right, the element, the bread, would his body broken for you and his and his blood, right, shed the juice that we remember for the forgiveness of your sins be the source of your worship and praise. For it's in this picture that we remember the mighty work of God to save wretched sinners like all of us in here. May the Lord open our eyes to treasure Jesus, brothers and sisters, and would he set our hearts ablaze as he did those two disciples. If you fast forward to the book of Acts, what do we see? Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he dies, and then what? He commissions his sermons from Jerusalem, Samaria, or Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So let's, let's think of that confrontation that Jesus had on Palm Sunday. And let's think of the confrontation that it has in our lives today, Jesus arriving as king. And would it propel us to go on mission in this city, both near and afar, to proclaim the goodness of our coming king, and the fact that he's going to come again and will ultimately put a bow, right, on all of his promises, gathering his church, establishing his kingdom to Israel, 
and ushering forth the new heavens and new earth where we will dwell with this glorious king for all of eternity, praising him, no longer with the instrument of unrighteousness to the side, but ready to go, fitted in the gospel, in line with the universe, in line with those angels, praising him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was slain for our redemption. Let's praise him, let's pray, and continue our worship, worshiping him uh, this Sunday. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you, God, that you are a God of promises who fulfills his word. Thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us to our own vices, our own sin. But in your grace, God, you, you sent your son to die for us. You sent your son to Jerusalem to be rejected and to die. And it was all in your sovereign plan to do so. It was for joy that Christ died to ransom, to redeem a people for himself. So, Lord, let us have the eyes to see Jesus as our glorious king, our suffering servant, as the promised seed. And would you give us hearts, Lord, that are ablaze by the study of your word that would compel us, Lord, to, to love in the regular, to love our families, to love in the workplaces, Lord, to, to be a witness, to have compassion on the city, and, Lord, to go to the nations and, and let them know of this glorious good news. Let your second coming be a motivation to us, to be prepared, to be ready, anticipating the arrival in which we will meet you face to face and see you in your full splendor, Lord. We love you, God. We thank you so much, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen.